You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 121. We talk a lot in here about how all behavior is communication. It's communication of an unmet need. But how do we figure out what that unmet need is and how do we respond in the moment? Y'all, I brought my friend Sarah McLaughlin on to chat about this with you. She is certified by Hand in Hand Parenting, and she dives into what that program teaches. It's a really cool program. There's a lot that's in sync with the SET method and our approach over at Seed. Some jazz for you all to get to tune into this conversation. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that our two new courses are coming at you on Tuesday, May 26th. We are releasing Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, an online course to guide you through how to do this work with your tiny humans, what it looks like to implement these strategies in the day-to-day with your kiddos. It is so exciting to release this to y'all. We've been working so hard to put it together so that you can have a concrete plan to follow and approach. For those of y'all who have been tuning into the podcast and diving in on Instagram and in our Facebook village, and you want a concrete framework, this is it. We also are releasing It Starts With You, the seed guide to reparenting your adult self. You guys, so many of us did not get this as kiddos. Every single parent's doing the best they can with what they have. And we have this opportunity to reparent ourselves and show up with intention rather than reacting from habit. In order to do so, we have to be able to reparent our inner child. And if you're like, what in the world does that mean? Babe, this is for you. <laughs> This is work I've been doing with myself, on myself, for years, and it has changed how I get to show up in the world and has allowed me the gift of being able to regulate and respond with intention so that I'm yelling less, so that I'm reacting less, um, and getting to choose how I respond to triggers and to trends. These are going live on Tuesday, May 26th. And for that first week, we are going to be offering special pricing on both. So stay tuned, babe. And in the meantime, if you're like, all right, but I need something to get started, head over to emotioncoachingguide.com and snag our free emotion coaching guide to get started on this journey and stay tuned for our new courses. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome here to Voices of Your Village. Today I get to hang out with Sarah McLaughlin. She lives in Maine and we got to meet in real life, which is how this relationship started. I gave a workshop at Birth Roots in Maine last June and she was there. We got to meet 
IRL and she saw the presentation and we've stayed in touch since and she reached out and was like, hey, let's have one of these conversations on air. And we're so in sync, Sarah. I'm so jazzed to dive into this with you today. How are you? I'm pretty good. You know, I'm hanging in there. It's (laughs) nice to see your face. Uh, even though it's not in real life at this moment, it's still nice to see your face. <laughs> Thanks. Likewise. Yeah, it's nice to see other faces other than the two faces I now see mm-hmm. all the time uh, in the house. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Uh, can you share with our village a bit about who you are and kind of what brought you here? Yeah, absolutely. So my background's in early childhood education. I was a preschool teacher and a toddler teacher for a number of years and then worked as a private nanny for a long time. And then I somehow ended up becoming a social worker. Um, So I've worked with families um, and children for over 25 years in many different capacities. Um, Most recently, I work as a writer actually at Zero to Three, which is a um, organization that Um, supports infants and toddlers nationwide. And um, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called What Not to Say, Tools for Talking with Young Children. And I'm working on my second book right now called Raising Humans with Heart. So um, I just love supporting families and understanding their kids better so that um, everybody can get along and have as much fun as possible. Totally. Connection is rad. Yeah. Awesome. So you are certified in hand in hand parenting and I want to touch on that. Can you share with folks a bit of it about hand in hand? It's super cool. I haven't done any workshops through them or anything like that, but I we're in alignment. Yes. That is my understanding from what I have seen of your work and what I know of their work um, that I just love. So hand in hand basically focuses on parent child connection as sort of the crux of how everything goes in your family and prescribes five listening tools. So it was really funny. I had, I was near publication date on my book called What Not to Say, Tools for Talking with Young Children, all about, you know, parent-child communication. And I learned about this org that focuses on listening. And I had focused so much on what we say in this mm-hmm. book. And I was like, oh, the other half of communication is listening. This is very important. I need to learn more about this. Plus, I had a two-year-old by then. And I was like, I'm feeling a little bit out of my depth. I, I made the mistake of thinking I could prepare myself for parenthood. And um, I could not. So uh, I, I was in, in a place where I was open to some new tools. And these listening tools are just wonderful. Really quickly, setting limits is the first, is one, um, because we have to set limits with kids because they need that guidance. I I talk about limits and boundaries as like guardrails on the side of a bridge. You um, don't really need them because you're not going to drive off, but it's nice to know that they're there and they help you feel safe. Um, And then the second one is called stay listening, which is when you set a limit and kids have big feelings about it, that we just make tons of space for that and um, connect and um, stay steadfast in our belief that the child can get through the big feeling and we don't have to do anything to fix it or change it um, and just kind of hold space for that. So hard to do. So hard to do. (laughs) Yep. So much. Well, which is, which is why those aren't the only two tools. Um, Because um, one of the tools that makes stay listening possible is called listening partnership. And that is a um, specifically organized time for two adults to connect and hold space for each other so that they can get the listening that they need to be able to provide the listening that their child needs in, uh, that's a quick way of putting it. 
because you can't kind of give what you don't have, which, um, you know, we could talk about that for a long time, I'm sure. Totally. But, Actually, I do want yeah. to talk about that. Yeah, sure. I can hold, I can hold, I think that was three. I can hold the other two. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I do want to talk about that because I, I posted something last night that has um, triggered a lot of feelings in the internet world mm. uh, <laughs> that it, it was a post about how children are not responsible for our feelings. Yeah. And I then went on to create more posts this morning that I'm excited to share because we got to talk more about this. It's, it was clearly, um, it, it was triggering for a lot of folks. We got a lot of comments about this and then my DMs blew up with people being like, but, mm. <laughs> and, and so I, I want to dive into this a little bit. I think when we're talking about being able to hold space for kids' feelings and not react to the behavior on the surface, but really hold space for those feelings and listen to what they're communicating to us. I think the one thing that is often overlooked that you've just brought up here is that we are all coming to adulthood with our own inner child voices and narratives our own subconscious running in the background, dictating how we react to things based off of our childhood experiences and our social programming, right? And if you as a child, when you were that tiny human, if nobody ever held space for your feelings and you didn't have someone you could break down to, it's really hard to do for a child. Oh yeah. Well, we Uh, have all the story that comes up about what the meaning around it and etc. Yeah, exactly. And it's so powerful. I have found for myself personally, like my parents aren't those people for me. They don't have the, nobody did it for them. And we repeat what we don't repair. And so they didn't have anyone who held space for them. They don't know how to do that for me. It makes them uncomfortable when I have a hard feeling. And so then they're also not somebody that I turn to, to break down with my hard feelings. They're phenomenal parents. This is not a knock on who they are as parents whatsoever. I love the crap out of them. And that's not a role that they play in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I have had to find with this question came up from folks uh, in this post yesterday of, you know, like having somebody to turn to. What do you do if there isn't somebody in your adult life that can hold space for your feelings that you have identified? I have a rad partner who's able to do this Mm -hmm. um, and, and a dear best friend who can hold space for my feelings and not solve them and all that jazz. What happens if you don't have that? Yeah, well, that's um, one of the beautiful things about this tool of listening partnership is that you don't have to have a relationship with this person. They don't have to know you very well. Um, I have a listening partner who I've never met, who lives in a different state. And what, what allows that container to happen is a couple of rules. And the couple of rules are there's a timer. You set a timer. You have a prescribed amount of time that you're going to exchange listening time. Each person gets the same amount of listening unless it's an emergency, which does happen. And then there's no advice giving. And, um, you know, the goal, the end goal is to um, make space for any feelings that are happening as part of the listening. That's basically it. So it's a part, I didn't realize this, this is a part of hand in hand. Correct. It's called listening partnerships. It's one of the listening tools. And you're like, but you're given a partner. I, I, no, I no, 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 no. You find a part, you find, we, uh, you can find a partner. You could choose a friend to be a partner or as part of the structure, you know, there's free groups that you can join online as part of their, um, what they offer. 
and, you know, people post, you know, hey, I'm looking for a listening partner at oh, this cool. time, um, you know, in this time zone, et cetera. Like I'm part of the instructor Facebook group. So I, I have a listening partner who happens to be another hand in hand instructor. So that's like a nice common ground, but certainly not necessary that you, um, you know, have anything in common actually, other yeah. than wanting to provide that listening space to someone. And, and the other thing that is asked of you as a listener is to sort of, um, just like you would with a child when they're play listening, when they're stay listening, and it does take practice, is to really hold your trust in their ability to get through the feeling mm -hmm. in, in your mind as you're listening, that you don't um, worry about the feelings being a problem. Yeah. Um, and that you really trust that this other human being is perfectly capable of working their way through the feeling and all you have to do is listen. Yeah. Ooh, I love this. It's super simple, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's far more powerful than you. I have a whole, I have a chapter in my book dedicated to these listening tools just because I think that they're so important. And what I say, this is my new book, Raising Humans with Heart. And what I say is I've literally encountered no other tool that has helped me extend my fuse as a parent, grow my bandwidth and my ability to provide the kind of emotionally intelligent, mm -hmm. um, you know, responsive, loving parenting that I want, that we all want to give. And that you're very familiar with all of the things that get in our way um, in trying to deliver that kind of parenting and be that kind of parent. And a lot of it is our inherited, I call it like the manual that you come to parent. There's not a manual. Oh, everybody's got a manual in their back pocket. And it's all the stuff that happened to them when they were kids. That is the manual that you bring to parenting. And so that a listening partnership is a great place to excavate that manual because you don't know you have it until you open your mouth to say something to your kid and your own parent comes out of yeah, your totally. mouth and you're like, wait a minute, I, A, I said I wasn't going to say that and B, like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So listening partnership is a great place, like you were talking about, however old your child is, is a really great question to ask, like, or whatever behavior you're up against, like how were tantrums handled when I was a child? If tantrums are really pushing my buttons when my two-year-old is losing it, um, it might be a helpful exploration in my listening partnership to talk about how tantrums were handled when I was two and how that did or did not work for me. Because for most of us, as you know, it didn't work. Like a lot of, a lot of our parents did not have the capacity to provide that kind of um, firm and kind and loving boundaried space. It just was not in it. We didn't have the information about brains. Like yeah, there's right. no, there's no, like you say, there's no fault. Nobody was trying to be a jerk. There just was no, not the information today than that there is today. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think of it in the same way that we have different like products or physical things for kids, like car seats. We have upgraded the car seats because we, you know better, you do better, right? And exactly. Like, yes. Thank we you, aren't, Maya Angelou. Yeah, exactly. And we uh, don't, it, it's not that like, oh, our parents had this option of this other car seat and they're like, nah, let me nah. put you in this like basically basket. Uh, no, <laughs> that wasn't how that went down. And it's the same here now with what we're coming to, but awareness of what we're bringing to adulthood is so huge here. I love yeah, this. For this sure. is great. I think. I, one of the things that came up for me here is that it is, I don't want to oversimplify for people how hard it is to build awareness of what we're bringing to adulthood, right? Like I have a coaching client right now who is getting triggered by these tantrums and she's like, but I know that they're allowed to have hard feelings. And then as we dug deeper into this inner child work, 
she has a little voice that says that kids are supposed to be obedient uh, and that if her, even though she knows now, like, that's not what I want, that's not what I want to bring to parenthood, what it still is saying is that, like, if her kids aren't being obedient, she's failing as a parent, yeah. right? And so, yeah, like, that's the messaging that's out there, that children, right. the parents' ability to parent is judged by their child's behavior, like, yeah. how good of a job you're doing, you know? Yeah, but so I want folks to know as they tune into this, like we're going to talk about stuff and I don't, I want you to know like it's not easy work, it's doable and it's not easy. So if you find right. yourself like trying to do this and it's hard, you're That's in the right normal, place. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, Glenn and Doyle recently did a little IG stories thing and she said, you know, being, you know, having, having icky mucky feelings is doesn't mean you're doing being a human wrong. It's just, that's actually doing it right. Like it's just, it's just painful. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with you. If you have uncomfortable feelings, that's just part of being a human. Yeah, exactly. And that's our goal here is to be able to hold space for those hard feelings and to rewrite that narrative for ourselves Mm -hmm. that um, it's okay to not be happy and it's okay for our kids to not be happy. It's okay for them to feel scared. It's okay for them to feel embarrassed or lonely or left out. Uh, They're going to feel those things, whether we try to avoid them or not. Right. And then they won't have the, if you can make space for it, there won't be the added extra layer, which most of us have around shame or, you know, feel guilty for not being happy or, you know, I have so much or whatever, whatever the story is you have running. It's, that's just an extra uncomfortable layer actually. Yeah. And, And if you, I mean, that's one of the things that helped me get comfortable. I mean, obviously so many things helped me get comfortable with my child's big feelings, but one was knowing that and this is where it's interesting to pull in some of the brain research, knowing that how they experience a feeling and, and be able to get through it to the other side, that that's like building a pathway in their brain of resilience and of capacity. Like that's a capacity I had to go back and build as a grown up <laughs> in therapy to be able to sit with an uncomfortable feeling for a really long time until it passed because I didn't have somebody coach me through that when I was little. And so every, once I saw what I was doing, when I would curtail, cause I found myself curtailing the feelings, even mm-hmm. though I knew intellectually that I did not want to do that. I was like, oh my gosh, why do I keep distracting him after 20 minutes? Because my amygdala would start going off after 20 minutes of crying, like clearly something must be wrong. And I would start to freak out. And once I could retrain my brain that no, I'm actually, when I do that, I'm robbing him of capacity. I'm robbing him of the opportunity to get all the way through the feeling and know that he can Mm -hmm. and have that, that's, that's self-esteem. That's, you know, self-confidence that you experience something hard and you get through it and then you gain comfort with that difficulty. And so once I saw it as like, I was actually curtailing a skill, I wanted him to learn that that helped me do the work I needed to do on my own discomfort. And there's always these kind of multiple layers going on and it isn't a one and done. Like you're saying, it is definitely an ongoing process that is to be revisited. And then they keep growing older and entering new, new and fun phases that will trigger you in entirely new (laughs) special ways. So um, that's all fun too. So totally the work doesn't end. No. 
I am loving ready-to-eat meals in this season of life. Things are really busy over here with a toddler and a newborn, and I don't always want to be focusing on meal planning and ordering groceries. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are chef crafted and dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. There's zero prep and zero mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup involved. And holy moly, do I need that right now. I also love that I can order as much or as little as I need by choosing my meals every week and I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast restaurant quality meals with no cooking required and there are more than 60 add-ons like pancakes and smoothies to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Head to factormeals.com slash village50 and use code village50 to get 50% off. That's code village50 at factormeals.com slash village50 to get 50% off. With spring on the horizon, but not quite here yet in Vermont, I've been looking for simple ways to give my body the energy boost it needs and keep up with healthy habits, especially on those tired mornings when I'm just feeling drained. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel more energized and ready to take on the day. It's a morning ritual that gives me peace of mind and then I'm getting comprehensive nutrition that supports my immune system and keeps me going all day. As a parent of two amazing kids, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so that I can continue to show up for the moments that matter. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm jazzed to welcome them as a new sponsor. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and 5 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com village. That's drinkag1.com village. Check it out. I think it does get easier in some ways as you get accustomed to Absolutely. learning how to pay attention to those voices. Okay, so we've gone through the first three. Yes, that was the first three. Um, So the last two are much in the same way that adults need that one-on-one listening. Um, There's a tool for children called special time, which, you know, is kind of like a time in where you, again, would send a timer and offer a child your undivided attention to lead the play in whatever way they find they would like to do, which when I first heard this, I was like, oh, no problem. You know, set a timer, let them play. But the not leading the play thing, I was like, oh, my, I had no idea how much backseat driving I was doing in the playroom until I set a timer and tried not to lead the play. And it really, or even just partly just because it's repetitive, it's boring. You know, your two-year-old wants to just drive the train back and forth on the track endlessly and, and just have to stop myself from trying to be like, oh, let's build a this or let's do a that. And the quality of the attention that your child gets when you're not in 
parenting mode and you're not in play director mode is entirely different and fills their cup in a completely different way that grows their bandwidth um, and nurtures their attachment and connection with you. So that's the second to the last tool. And then the last one is play listening, which is um, much in the same way that, you know, I believe a good cry will sort of like offload stresses and tensions. And, you know, that's why you just hold the space for the feeling because once they get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's like the, the washcloth is wrung dry and then you feel lighter, right? Um, laughter can kind of offload lighter tensions and worries and stresses. And so um, playlisting is just basically using play and humor and fun as a way to connect, sometimes even as a way to set limits. Um, if it is done in, you know, if a child is open to that, like my, I was rereading some anecdotes I had written for my, um, for my certification with Hand in Hand. And one of the things that I would do is, you know, sometimes your kid just is off track and they're, well, I'm sure we'll get to this around decoding behavior, but sometimes they just will randomly smack you out of nowhere. And you're like, what on earth is that about? And, and when I learned to kind of think of that as like, my attention is needed here. Like mm -hmm. my child is trying to get my attention. People say they're just doing that to get their, your attention. And I'm like, yeah, that's because they're smart <laughs> and they need to get your attention. So they're doing it. However, the best way, the most you know, accessible way that they know how. And so one of my playlisting responses for that was like, oh, a smack. For every smack, I have to give you 20 kisses. And then I would like grab him and start like kissing him on the cheeks and, um, you know, just getting the silly connection going or like one other time he was like hiding because he wouldn't put his pajamas on. I couldn't figure out what to do. So I just like, A, I sat down and I was like, I don't know what to do right now because all I could think of to do was stuff I knew I didn't want to do. And that I had like published a book saying you shouldn't do. So then I was really in a, <laughs> I was really stuck in the corner. And then I just, you know, took my little blank, his little lovey blankie. And I, I was like, oh, right connection. I'm just gonna do something playful to try to make a connection. And so I threw my little blanket at his, at his head. And then he like giggled and threw it back. And, you know, then we got this sort of like back and forth thing going and we reconnected and started, I said, I'm going to get you, you know, just, he was three. Um, and refusing to get dressed, which is totally a thing that three-year-olds do. Oh, yeah. And once we had the connection going, then he was, um, you know, he was, uh, I can't think of the right word, but he was in, we were in, in, like in trained or yeah, we were engaged together. And I was like, where he'd been refusing to get dressed. And I was thinking, well, it's either force or this or that, which I don't want to do. Um, once we were connected, then he like happily went and got dressed and I was like, oh, this is why this works. This is why play can sometimes be your way to connection, even when things are going poorly and it feels like a more heavy hand is what's needed. Yeah, a couple of things there came up for me. Sure. One, I think like play, at, like in, for instance, transitions or mm -hmm. times that are often challenging. I think we often just try to get kids through it. Yeah. And uh, this is something I, I just gave a workshop last week to teachers supporting families virtually through COVID. And I was like, yeah. let families know not just what your schedule is, but let families know what, how you get from point A to point B. Like, how do you actually move from snack to getting right. outside without there being a million annoying things that happen in between, right? Like, oh, we play this game or we sing, sing song. this song. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. exactly. So like those things, 
I I do want to chat for a second though about play as a response to yes a behavior like yes. if I was hit my inclination here would be to say mm-hmm. like n- n- they're not no in hitting. trouble for hitting no not even no hitting they're not in trouble mm-hmm. for hitting I won't let you hurt my body and mm-hmm. then are you trying to connect with me mm-hmm. for me attention seeking is connection seeking sure yeah yeah they're seeking connection and yeah. so then we can bring bringing awareness to for them so that we don't continue to see them hitting me for connection and instead right. letting them know if you want to connect with me we can play this game you can say book or play or whatever mm-hmm. and like that's how we responded to kiddos even in like as young toddlers one-year-olds who could sign play or yeah. read a book uh, to let them know how else to communicate that desire yeah yeah there's a um that certainly has a time and a place and I think you have to know the child a and b the other thing that I will say is that sometimes they're too crispy for that kind of verbal interaction. And this approach works really well when they're just a little bit too far into their downstairs brain. And then I would also, um, I should follow up to say that I wouldn't let the hitting completely go, but I would circle back to it later when they were in a different brain state. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like in that situation, I might have, in my immediate response based on knowing that he had to be pretty crispy to hit me would be, to not say something right away about getting my attention a different way, but I would do the silly, I would do the like, I'm going to kiss you. And I would go right for the like cuddly connected silly thing. And then after I would say, you know, there's better ways to get my attention next time totally. you could do blah, 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 or blah, blah. And I know you're doing the best that you can. I actually wrote a blog post once about when my son was seven and he threatened to throw a bowl at me. And I, ended up later praising him for threatening to throw a bowl at me because that was an improvement over a, a more devolved behavior <laughs> from the past. Right. And how it seems so counterintuitive. And, and I ended, and I said, you know, your brain is growing and you are, will eventually be able to express your upset without making threats. And now he's 12 and he, you know, is so far beyond even threatening to do something like that. Whereas before he used to just do it, you know, he used to just be aggressive and now he totally is not, but that's a long process of kind of planting the seed, like going for the connection, going for the play, giving the information, helping to make those connections, giving the positive feedback, you'll get there. You'll eventually have that feeling of wanting to hit and be able to not like just kind of planting that seed. Um, it's kind of like a little pep talk, little pep talks along the way um, of trusting that they'll get there. Yeah. I love that in the, like afterwards and thanks for noting that, but like, we're not going to have that conversation about what they can do next time until we have a full podcast episode on when to talk about the behavior. Actually, if people want to dive into that, we'll link it in the blog post that we're not going to talk about that when we're in it. Uh, But I, I, there's, there still is like a resistance for me around, like, I don't think my inclination of being hit would be to turn it into play. I, I don't want to I guess for me, I want to work on processing that emotion, right? So identifying Mm. that I won't let them hit me. And it seems like you're looking for my attention Mm -hmm. or that you, it seems like you're frustrated when you hit me. Were you trying to say you want to play, right? Like depending on, I guess if they, if it was like flippant almost like where I was expecting it versus 
like, oh, there's like rage and right, now you're absolutely. hitting. Those are different. Sure. Um, but I, I feel like we'll see this often with like babies or young toddlers where they'll like do something that is physical to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, I think like for, for those instances, my inclination is not to play in response. I'm going to have to do some work thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could think of a different example because hitting might be just like a little over the line um, for some folks. And, and like I said, you really do have to know your child. And this was like a very strange, like out of the blue thing um you know from like a two-year-old you know and and sometimes I think that we can um I don't want to say get into trouble but I feel like when we we often are guessing what a child is thinking or feeling and I feel like sometimes that can be like a tricky boundary that I don't want to cross Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, where yeah. I say it seems like you're angry, like I feel like that can be a bit of a slippery slope as far as like jumping. I, I'm all it's like a funky gray spot for me because I yeah. do think it's important to name emotions for kids, and I feel like sometimes we can jump in too quickly and steer their process too much. So that's why I feel like it's a uh, you got to know your your the, who you're talking to, what the relationship is etc. Because that can yeah. get a little bit sticky. I think more importantly than like making sure you nail their emotion, when we did this, the research on the set method, it was really cool to see like we had a two-year-old who I was like, man, it looks like you're really angry. And she's like, I'm not or really mad. She's like, I'm not mad. I'm sad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, cheers. She's two. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they, they can start to correct us. But I, what I'm more interested in is building awareness of what we're seeing as the adult, like, oh, your face mm-hmm. is so scrunched and your shoulders are up to your ears. Yeah. And you're, fists are really tight. You look really mad. Mm -hmm. And like, then I can pair for them. Like, that's what I'm seeing is, are these physical things happening? So they can start to build. We had then a four-year-old who would say, my shoulders are up to my ears and my fists are so tight and I'm really mad. That's (laughs) awesome. It was so cool to see him go from like hitting to being able to notice the awareness building so that he could regulate. Took a lot of time to get there, but we got there. That's awesome. Uh, but that's more what, I, and I, I guess I, we do fall into the camp of identifying the emotion that we are seeing. And then yeah. I'm interested in going deeper into like, and this can happen later too. Like, oh, it looks like you were mad earlier. I wonder if you were feeling embarrassed. Right, right. Yeah. Right? Because like, mad's like, always on top of something else, right? Yeah. It's a yeah. secondary emotion. And I want to get down and dirty with that root emotion. Yeah, um but we don't always have to do it in the moment. I can let them know, like, you might be feeling mad because yeah. you're feeling embarrassed or disappointed or guilty or ashamed or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, I did just think of another example that might be a little more um, palatable is that, you know, even just something where a child is refusing to get in the car that you, this is sort of in line with what you were talking yes. about earlier as a, as a caregiver, like what do the caregivers do? They sing a song or, you know, just having those, silly things in your back pocket. Like I would sometimes just put my son's sock on my hand and turn it into a character, like anything to like get the play and the connection going. I had an English nanny character that I would just transform into when he would dig his heels in and refuse to do something. You know, I'm not doing that mom. I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure mom. I'm your English nanny. I've come in and she's left and it's time to get in the car now. And he would he would look at me like kind of funny, but then I would keep going with it, just stay in character. And then he would start laughing and then he would get in the car. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it works so well, but it works. And it just depends on your, you have to know, you know, who your audience is for what they will think is funny and what will disarm that, you know, counter will or that resistance. 
Yeah, totally. So you aren't in like that power battle. I, yeah, I'm here for it for transitions. It does feel cozier for me for transitions, I feel like. Um, And I want to let folks know, like, if you get to a place where you're doing this and you're making that transition fun, it is also okay to hold the boundary of like, all right, we are going to get into the car now. You can come in or I can help you get in. Um, but whether or not you ride in a car seat, not a choice. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so it, as you're, as folks are trying this on for size, it, it's not going to be a hundred percent of the time and that's okay. It's like yeah. everything that we're doing here. It's just uh, nice to have a toolbox for sure. Totally. Totally. And yeah, that's what I was saying to teachers. Like so much of this is, is innate for teachers at this point. Mm-hmm. It's a part of your day all the time. Yeah. I was like, share those things with parents about like, how are you moving through these transitions? how do you get a kid to go down for a nap, right? Like, et cetera. Um, I, one of the biggest things that we find people struggling with is being able to answer that question of what is my child communicating? Because I'll ask them that when they reach out and they're like, we're seeing this behavior on the surface. My first question is almost always, what do you think your kid's communicating? And they're like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is hard to decode. So let's go into that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. All behavior is communication for sure. Um, and a lot of behavior is driven by emotions. And sometimes figuring out what the meaning is means digging into what the emotions might be. And I find that that's a helpful place to explore. Um, And like you were talking about earlier, like needing attention or needing to feel connected, or I'm trying to think of all the, all the different feelings that could be underneath behaviors. Um, And like we already mentioned that anger is always a kind of a secondary emotion that's on top of something else. And one of the things that I often tell parents is that all aggressive children are scared children. Like, as we know, your amygdala goes off and, and often makes you um, or drives your aggression, and that that is based on a fear response. So totally. being able to figure out what um, what might help a child feel safe is often a first go-to. Like if their behavior is, um, you know, headed in that direction, that can be a good first assessment. Those are the first couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, and I I love that. It is all this fear. I was just having a conversation with my husband the other day. We were having a hard conversation and I had cried for a while. I could cry though, like a Hallmark commercial, like for sure, Mindy, quick to tears and uh, had cried and we were having this hard conversation. And then he shared like his intention behind something. And I was like, oh, so it's a fear of causing me to have a hard feeling. And he saw it as respect and mm-hmm. I saw it as a fear of mm-hmm. causing me to have a hard feeling. And it was so interesting to just see that delineation too of like, we can write these patterns for ourselves of what we want. Like we want to have an obedient child. Oh, it's a fear that they won't listen mm-hmm. to us and that that's a reflection of our parenting, right? So like, right, right. I think part of this is really getting down and dirty into like, what is that fear? If it's, if the kid's embarrassed, maybe it's a fear of feeling excluded or not mm-hmm. being included. Um, right. I, yeah, or not feeling connected, or like a lot of times, I'm sure a lot of your um, clients, are similar to mine, are you know people who have a toddler and a baby, and the toddler yeah. is having a really really hard time because that's such a huge disruption, and there's so many feelings that come up of je- jealousy and envy and regression and all of those things that are just you know a part of 
that transitional time when parents are stretched thin and everybody has needs and it's hard to meet everybody's needs and, um, you know, being able to dig into those feelings and validate them and make space for them is so, is so huge. I had another thought and it escaped me. There is so much power in that validation though, right? Like I think in our minds, we're like, we go to, okay, so how do we carve out time to make sure that I am connecting with this toddler, letting them know that we still, and sometimes all it takes is like, it's so different now with the baby. Exactly. Our family feels different and it is different and it's different for everybody. I mean, everybody's world changed, not just that kiddo and just being able to validate that for that child can go a long way. Yeah. And it's really the empathy that comes with the words, right? Like your example was so great there. And that was one of the, that was one of my learning curves from, from, uh, from, you know, working with other people's kids to working with my own is, is being able to bring my own stress level down enough to actually convey my true validation and empathy. Um, Because not paying attention to my own stress level got me into some some pickles um, because all of the words are wonderful and all of the shifts in thinking are wonderful and when you are not able to stay in your own thinking brain it makes it really tough um, one of the things that I learned to do was pay attention to my own body language like you were talking about reflecting a child's body language to them but one of the things I would lose track of was just like my shoulders would get up and my face would be scrunched and my tone of voice would be eh, um, instead of just like, yeah, it's really, this is a tough thing that you're dealing with. It's so hard, whatever it was, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you aren't able to actually convey that calm, connected empathy, your words just don't land and your message doesn't land. And so that safety just really doesn't land. And so um, I know you talk a lot about parent self-regulation too, because it is so key in being able to um, make the space so that you can find out what's going on under underneath the behaviors. The other, oh, this is the other thought that I did have about behavior is that sometimes the behavior is just developmental. And um, one of the things that like, sometimes the meaning behind the behavior is that this child is two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and we know got that, this that. recently in our group about, dumping. Yeah. Uh-huh. She, she was like, she just keeps dumping everything out of her bins. And we were like, Oh yeah. 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 We'll give her more opportunities to dump like, right. that, that you can tolerate, right. You yeah. can certainly make those kinds of developmental behaviors more tolerable for yourself. Like I used to work in a two-year-old classroom. Guess what two-year-olds, one of the things they love to do that triggers everybody. They love to spit. They're just figuring out how to get their mouths to work, to spit. It's actually an important developmental thing to learn how to do because you're, you know, it has to do with speech. It's like all kinds of, all kinds of coolness. However, you don't want kids spitting on each other, spitting in the classroom. And so finding, letting the kids go to the big trough sink, giving enough space in between them and letting them spit in the sink, rinse it down, like figuring out ways to allow for those kinds of behaviors that are um, un, un, uh, unappealing, let's say. Um, but having parents understand what kids are capable of doing at different ages is really so important. Zero to three actually did a survey a few years back where they, I can't remember the exact, <clears throat> the exact numbers, but like a huge percentage of parents overestimate their toddler's ability to 
control their own emotions, share, um, you know, communicate their feelings, like all of these things that we just think that they should be able to do at a much younger age than their brains actually allow them to do these things. And that can be a source of, um, you know, disconnection and strife. I think we underestimate it in infants and tod- like young toddlers, one-year-olds, and we overestimate it in our twos, threes, and fours. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there gets an age where we're like, they get there and we're like, oh, they should be able to do this thing. But we didn't lay the foundational skills for it in infancy and toddlerhood to know like they don't go from not having any of these foundations to all of a sudden having a developed skill. And that's something that we we saw a lot of when we were doing our research of the SET method, specifically with our preschool pre-K kids, where I was like, oh, my heart like hurts for them because all of a sudden we're like, I know that you know how to zip up your jacket. You can do this by yourself. You do not need help. And what they're really saying is I have a new sibling at home and I'm feeling overwhelmed. And right now I need this extra attention from this teacher to help me zip my jacket, even though I have the skill. Right. Right, right. Um, And, but this focus on like skills that they should be able to have and access at all that at all points, it was so wild how the Hmm. bar was so low for infants and young toddlers. And then all of a sudden, it was like a two-year-old should be able to do this and a three-year-old should be able to do this and a four-year-old. And we're like, where did we lay wow. any of that? <laughs> oh, wow, that is so wild. It was cool. It was That's so very cool. Um, yeah, and I and I often find that like I have higher expectations for like an infant or a toddler for like how we're communicating, what I expect them to be able to do when other for other folks they're like just a baby. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was really interesting to see that of like, what is developmentally appropriate? Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, and then how do we set boundaries around this so that everybody's being safe and yeah, developing like pro-social skills? Um, I get like when you said the spitting thing, I pictured this teacher, I was doing work one day at a desk and she was walking upstairs, she was doing sensory uh, rag activities with a couple of kids before nap time. And they're doing these, like carrying these things up the stairs and back down and doing races and stuff. And she turns the corner and I can't see her, but I can just hear her say, I won't let you spit on my body, but you can spit on me in your head. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so a the, really good one. <laughs> the things that you hear uh, at work when you like work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I know. Yeah. I won't let you. And so many things <laughs> fill in the blank. Absolutely. But you can do it in your head. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. I'm going to remember you can that. Mad at me is really yeah. what she was saying. You can totally be mad at me. Yeah. And yeah. I won't let you spit on my body. Hey there. I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. 
If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. We have a podcast episode on hitting, kicking, biting, and spitting, and we intentionally included spitting into this because it really does fall in this category of things that are going to come up. Like I've never once, I I taught toddlers, and I never once had a classroom where we didn't have people biting at some point or another. Mm -hmm. And And we're, we're laying this foundation, all that jazz. They're still going to bite sometimes. And your kid might have been the bitten one this time. They might be the biter next time. Like this is going to come back around. And the goal here is not to never have a child bite or hit or kick or spit. Right. It's to know how to respond in a way that is uh, not a reaction, but an intentional response. Right. And that keeps the shame out. Cause then the shame just becomes sort of a spiraling you know, um, then it becomes about power and um, control instead of about development. And that's where things get a little funky. Totally. Actually, I'm curious about what's your thoughts to say you have like a conflict with kiddos in a toddler classroom or preschool classroom and one kid like hits or pulls hair or something and then flees. A lot of folks are in the camp of like, don't say I'm sorry or whatever, but like, what's your Mm -hmm. approach to that behavior? Yeah, I'm not typically one for forced apologies, but, um, you know, when I was in a classroom, it's been a while since I was in a classroom, but we would do a check-in, um, or, I mean, I might, I would definitely check in with both kids myself and see what was happening. Like a more recent example would be with my own kiddo. Um, you know, I would check in with him if he was the fleer, I would check in with him if he was the one whose child did flee. And I like to ask kids, if they would like to check in. Um, And that's probably what I would do. I would say, you know, do you want to, most kids will say yes. Do you want to check in with your friend? Um, Some kids might not, some, but my experience is that most kids will, if you wait for the timing, this is the thing of like being able to read the brain state. um, I would, uh, I would ask them to do it once I knew that they were calm um, from assessing where they were at in their brain. Yeah, I think that that's exactly that's where thought. we are with that too, is that where they are, that emotion coaching is not a time for law enforcement or delivery of justice. Absolutely not. Agreed. Right? So yeah. like, while we're emotion coaching them and they've been the fleer, say, and I'm 
first moment I'll let the kid flee as long as they're not hurting anybody else. They probably are fleeing because they are already adding their own shame or embarrassment or guilt or whatever. Their attempt to self-regulate, right? By taking a little bit of space potentially. Or knowing like I wasn't supposed to do this and I did it. And now I now I now have a feeling of embarrassment or something. And on top of that, this is my fear with like forced check-ins or check-ins before we're ready. I Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a huge fan of like emotion coaching that kid. And then once they're calm, just saying, I know you didn't want to hurt her. Exactly. Wasn't your intention. Yep. I see her crying over there. Is there anything we could do to help her feel mm-hmm. calm or safe again? Yep. Um, giving them, and I think that's where we can build that empathy, but it, it, that rad, I was just curious what your thoughts were on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Same, what same. if you are like, okay, I'm trying and I don't know what my child's communicating. They're not hungry. They're not tired. It's not a sensory route that I can figure out. Um, and I don't know what's driving this. Like, I don't know the emotion that's driving it. Where do you go from there? Um, can you give me an example of what the behavior might be? Totally. Like say yeah. we, I feel like there's so many that just like popped up into my head. We have so many DMs <laughs> about behaviors now <laughs> in COVID. Everyone's like, we're stuck inside and we're I can't, Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> um, so yeah, this one came up recently of a family. They're like, they have a nine or 10 month old and then they have a kiddo who's maybe two and a half, almost three. Mm-hmm. And the two and a half, three-year-old is now very protective of their space and we we ended up getting to the bottom of this but uh the person reached out and was like I don't know what's going on here like we have played at home they oh they were she was stay-at-home mom so they were she was like our like day-to-day routine mm-hmm. hasn't changed a whole lot and mm-hmm. she's like and now all of a sudden like if the baby is anywhere in the same room nearby the older kiddo's just yelling like, no, get away, stay away from me. <laughs> and um, she was like, first of all, what do I do with this? And mm-hmm. we can't stay, we literally can't stay away from you right now. <laughs> we are all stuck in the same right. house. Yeah. And, and, and where's it coming from? She's like, it's mm-hmm. random. It feels like different times of day. It's just like, it'll, it'll, and it'll surge. And he's like, really almost like protective of his space, regardless of whether or not he's like playing. I was like, is he building something? Doesn't want it to get knocked down, whatever. She was like, didn't even matter. Yeah. 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 You said the baby was like nine or 10 months old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me that much, even COVID aside, you know, just because that's the age when babies get a little bit more mobile and, and older children tend to feel a little bit more threatened by the baby, like up until that age, the baby's like, you know, it might be noisy and disruptive and take your parents' attention, but as a toddler, they're not getting into your stuff and your business and your space, um, you know, until they're about that age. So um, I, I would, I mean, I, what I, I mean, I'm guessing that that's what the behavior is about. And so then I guess the question is, how do you manage it, especially when you're stuck at home? Um, you know, and things that come to mind are just ways to give the older child some semblance of, you know, power and control in some area that is more tolerable than yelling whenever the baby is in the room. Um, and, you know, making space for those feelings. The other thing, again, that just pops into my mind because it's been successful so many times is having the grownups. I mean, I'm assuming the grownups' tension levels are potentially a little bit higher right now based on just 
the world and life situation that they might be, um, you know, that might be bleeding into the, into the family ecosystem in a way that they're not aware of. So I'm just thinking, you know, man, the more that people have a listening partnership or an off a place to offload their own stresses and worries, the more that they're going to be able to stay calm and go for the connection with that older child that will just sort of reduce and alleviate some of the stresses and worries that that child might be happening, having in that situation. Yeah. But I'm curious what you dug up. Yeah. I mean, similarly, we were like, yeah, kiddos moving now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. And she was like, okay, but I can't, am I going to stop him from crawling? No, of course (laughs) not. Absolutely not. No. And we were like, yeah, the kid is now like, but that is a transition for the older child to experience. Like you knew this was coming. You knew this babe around this time period is going to start to move. (laughs) No. Right. Like this is a surprise for them all of a sudden. And it's, celebrated and it's really exciting and all that jazz and then there's just the aftermath and I was like but also for adults like you might be jazzed that your kid's crawling and then all of a sudden you're like oh shoot now we need gates up now we need to figure out how to there's there's the transition for everybody and I was like start off with validating that for this kid they're Mm -hmm. like it's different again just the validation of this is different now when we put them down remember they used to stay in one spot now they're moving and even bringing in your own anecdotes of like yeah I went to cook dinner and I put them in the living room and I thought they were going to be there and I came back and they were in the dining room pulling at my plants or whatever and surprise yeah exactly (laughs) And, and and you can say like and I was surprised and it was frustrating because those are my plants and I don't want them to play with them but I had to figure out and then going through like your process as the adult and how what could we do if I don't want them to play with that with that plant like what how can we solve this problem and then we can bring it into the kiddo of like yeah if you're worried about them taking your toys or whatever where is this space that is a you only space exactly and they chose his room he had his own room he could shut his door if he wanted to and that's where like any toys that he was not in a place yet to like share or welcome another human into went in his room and they made the rule of anything in the living room was fair game. Yeah. And uh, so that it, it, cause they were getting into the space where like the tiny human would come over, grab something, kids not playing with it. He's like, that's mine. You can't right, play right. with it. Yeah. So that was, that was the uh, problem solving solution. But I was like, start by just validating that feeling. Like we can't solve the problem of where things are going to go and what the mm-hmm. rules, what the new structure is going to look like, what the boundaries are going to be until we've validated and really empathized with that uh, emotion that the kid is feeling right now. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. And yeah, that's such a good solution to find a, a, just an arena for having some power and control. Cause that's what that, that's what that, you know, excitability that trigger happy toddler is one who just doesn't feel like they have a sense of power and control over there over their stuff and their world and their grown-ups and all of that good stuff and even the adult who like had this control of I could put you down you don't go anywhere to now I put you down I go to make dinner and you're pulling on my plants (laughs) right like (laughs) that's real for everybody (laughs) yeah totally yeah Uh, but I think often we we see it as ours and and the kiddos thing is separate and like especially when we're talking about siblings it's often a transition for all parties involved. Um, it's rarely that a kiddo is making a transition or there's something new that doesn't affect the family system. Right, exactly. Everybody's connected. 
Turns out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Plugged into each other emotionally and all that good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The last question I have for you is about the question that comes up for us on aren't we condoning or permitting a behavior if we allow it to happen and we just talk about the emotion or just talk about the sensory piece or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, in a word, no, um, we're not <laughs> actually. Um, well, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time one of us in the last hour said, I can't let you, um, what that does, that actually means don't let them. <laughs> I remember giving a talk once at a preschool, this woman was like, well, my two-year-old just keeps climbing this thing. And I was like, oh, okay, well, don't let them do that anymore. And she was like, well, no, I can't. He just keeps doing it. And I was like, no, you have to actually stop. You have to actually stop him from doing it. Either move the thing that he's climbing, get rid of it, put it in a closet, block it with something else, you know, go and pick his body up every single time he tries to climb it and move it, move him to safety. Like literally don't let them do it. Um, You know, and that means that for some kids who are biters, as you brought up, you know, I'm sure if you worked in a classroom, which it sounds like you have, um, if I recall correctly, you know, you, you have a kid who's prone to biting, you literally are shadowing them and stopping them from biting other children. As they are opening their mouth, you are sliding your hand in front of theirs so that they don't bite the other child. Um, but really, I, I won't let you means I actually won't let you. It means I'm going to stop you, which is great for behavior that you can stop. It is problematic for behavior that you can't stop. Um, potentially, which is where I have found the hand in hand tool to be very, very useful because there's two things that you, you know, behavior wise, one is things that a child is doing, you don't want them to do. And another is, you know, things you want them to do that they're refusing to do. And sometimes you actually don't have control over those things. Um, And so that's where you know, having your own reserves and being able to emotion coach yourself is comes in really handy because you might need to um, you know, have a very long fuse to be able to get through a child's big feelings before they comply with something. Like the beautiful thing about stay listening, which is that really just holding space, is that sometimes they may end up doing what you ask them to do, which just takes longer than you want it to take um, because you have to process the emotions first and then coach them through to actually do what you want to do. So yeah, if you can't not let them do it, um, then you have to regulate yourself and be patient and you have to be, um, you kind of just have to not give up and you have to process your own stuff that comes up around it. I'm not going to be able to give any good examples right now. But. I'm thinking of one of a kid who's like, say, standing in a room and is like, no, I'm not going to sleep and like won't even enter his bedroom. Mm-hmm. And we, when I think of things that we can't get kids to do, like the things that really come poop, sleep, <laughs> exactly. we can't get them to poop, sleep and eat. Those yeah, are the exactly. three that are like, yeah. You can't make a human no. do it. No, you can't. Um, yeah. We can support their systems yep. to be optimized for it, et cetera. And right. we can support when we, so we do sleep work at seed mm-hmm. all because you can't function as a human if you're sleep deprived. And so in order to do higher level thinking in this work, we need to make sure people are getting quality yeah. sleep. And sleep is an interesting one to me because we as a society and in our village, we see this too, where folks are cozier, maybe with hard feelings during the day, but when it's around bedtime or sleep, all of a sudden we're like, no, you're not supposed to have hard feelings. And if you have them, it's my job to make sure they stop. All of a sudden there's this like switch of like, no, there can't be any crying at bedtime or the can't. And we're like, where did this 
at what mm -hmm. time of day did that switch? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's so interesting. People to get me. tired. It's like restraint collapse, you know, like being able to, or like self-regulation. I don't know. There's funny, there's studies about how you like can use up your self-regulation and kind of like run out. Totally. <laughs> and, and that's, I, it's not like a drained thing. It's this, yeah. um, there's like a narrative around uh, sleep yeah, specifically. Around sleep. Oh, for sure that there can't be any crying involved. And I'm just straightforward that we don't practice cry it out, but I also will never practice a no cry solution because I right. want, if, if kids are making a transition or they're doing something that they yeah. don't want to do, yeah. they might be upset about it. They're allowed to yeah. be mad. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. to say like, I'm sleeping in my room for the first time by myself and it feels different and I feel lonely. And mm -hmm. that's what you can feel lonely and we can support you with tools for what to do if you feel lonely. Yeah. Um, the yeah. thing about the thing about building um, capacity comes to mind too. Like, the more that you are able to hold boundaries and make space for the big feelings that happen, you know, when children are littler, when mm -hmm. during the day, when it's you know maybe easier to let it go. Um, I know that I'm not at my best when the day is at the end of the day, and so I used to do a thing where I would purposefully set limits in the middle of the day that I didn't really care about that much because then my child would have an emotional release at 2 p.m. instead of at 8 p.m. when I was not as like, you know, top, top. Yeah, I just was not at my best at 8 p.m. to listen to his strong feelings and have that like, you know, capacity in myself. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I would just be like, no, we're not going to do that thing you want to do at 2 p.m. And so he would have a big meltdown at 2 p.m. instead of it, because part of it is just accumulation of stresses and totally. tensions and worries that kids are collecting from being little kids and ha not having a lot of power and having yeah. somebody else tell them how their day goes all the time. And, you know, if, if that's going to accumulate and, and blow up at some point, you do have a little bit of power in that as an as an adult to be able to pick the timing of your meltdown that you're going to listen to. Um, I definitely use that as a strategy for for helping, you know, the regulation side. One of the things that um, one of the tools we have for folks, we worked with my favorite OT, Lori, helped us put together like a sample schedule for kids for sensory regulation, because mm -hmm. a lot of what we see in these big meltdowns happening later is a buildup of dysregulation from a sensory perspective. And so she explained that the sensory benefits to your central nervous system last about 90 minutes to two hours. So if you're like, we're doing one big body play activity in the morning oh, yeah. and one in the afternoon, that by the time you get through the day, you, you don't have reserves to pull from. That's right. where a lot of, we'll see a lot of these big emotions. So we built in um, a whole list of sample activities that you can do and uh, a schedule that can fit in. Like, how can you do these? what can kids do on their own to help with sensory regulation so they don't always need an adult yeah. and then what can be adult facilitated also like note to adults this is true for all of us last about 90 minutes two hours not just for kids. So, <laughs> so smart if you're like i'm going for a run in the morning and that's the only thing i'm doing to help regulate my central yeah. nervous system you're also gonna hit four to seven is probably gonna be real hard for you yeah. um, and when pe folks reach out and they're like, oh my gosh, the end of the day, like that four to seven chunk is so hard. I'm like, great. What are we doing throughout the day to mm -hmm. maintain sensory regulation? Because uh, it's really hard to emotion process when you're dysregulated from a sensory yeah. perspective. That's yeah. so smart. I love that you built that in. It's brilliant. 
Yeah, it's just key for me. You know, yeah. it's like if a kid was hungry, we wouldn't be emotion processing. I'd be feeding totally. them. And so yeah. if your sensory system's dysregulated, I'm not going to emotion process. We're going to regulate your sensory system. Right. First uh, things first. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it was interesting when we shared about sensory, we realized like so many folks for them, sensory is either like strictly tactile, um, like a sensory bin, right, or right. even like clothes, how things feel. Mm-hmm. Or for them, it's related to autism. And I'm like, no, we have every single human has eight sensory systems and we're all doing this. And so we have now been brainstorming at Seed, like how do we go deeper into this in a way that makes sense for folks um, and, and relates to everyday life? It's an interesting combo. Cool. I love the idea of parents needing to meet those needs for themselves too. Like if that's, you know, working in a little... 3.30 p.m. yoga or whatever, stretching or even doesn't have to be. I think one of the things that I know trips me up is thinking that it has to be a big thing. And sometimes it can be just like reaching up to the sky and then touching my toes like a few times, like mm -hmm. sometimes a little stretch or a little like five minutes of meditation or, you know, other things that kind of reset me in general, yeah. not necessarily just talking about sensory, but other things that like reset you, like figuring out what those small little things are so that you can do them yeah. more frequently instead of saving it all up. Totally. For you and kiddos, actually in the schedule that was part of it, you'll see it's like five minute chunks. We're not, we're not saying do this for half an hour. We're saying yeah. dance to one song, have a dance right. party for one song, right? Like yeah. do one activity. Rad. So where makes can, it so doable. what's that? That it makes it so doable. Yeah, exactly. More accessible. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out and chatting with me. I think there were so many nuggets of wisdom in this that you got to share with us. I'm really jazzed about hand-in-hand -hand parenting, giving a little shout out here. It's really rad. Yeah. Where can folks find your book, connect with you, et cetera? Um, my website is sarahmclaughlin.com and McLaughlin is spelled M-A-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-A-N and it's Sarah with an H and no spots, dots or dashes, just sarahmclaughlin.com. Um, my new book is actually was just delivered to the publisher. So I'm hoping for a fall release date. It's called Raising Humans with Heart. My first book, um, What Not to Say, is available on Amazon. And if you request it at your local bookstore. Rad. Thank you so much. We'll link to all those in the blog post as well. Thanks for hanging out with me, Sarah. Super. Thanks so much, Alyssa. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. 
I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.